The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. I'm not sure if I'm encouraged um, <laughs> or hurt. More, more encouraged, I think. So, hey, uh, can, let, just one more time for those three. Let's just thank those guys. Uh, statistically speaking, more people rank uh, the fear of public speaking above the fear of death. Right? So like Jerry Seinfeld says, most people at a funeral would rather be the guy in the box than the guy giving the eulogy, right? Like, so, so that, that, takes, that takes courage. Thank you guys for, for sharing those things. Actually, I don't know if I really should preach, uh, but I'm gonna uh, because I apparently like to make little quips uh, and jokes. And uh, so... Let's get after it. Uh, if you do have your Bible, please grab it and open it up to 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible with you, you, you can open a phone or a tablet. 1 Corinthians is somewhere there. Uh, you can also open up one of the hardback black Bibles underneath your chairs. Uh, those are, 1 Corinthians uh, will be on page 952 in those black Bibles. Uh, but 1 Corinthians is where we're going to be this morning. Um, as you're turning there, let me kind of recap because everything builds on everything here, right? As we are walking through books of the Bible, uh, everything kind of builds on uh, previous uh, sermons. So Paul is starting this letter to the, the church at Corinth, and it's been fascinating up to this point. Uh, the, the church that, that, that uh, is at the town of Corinth was planted by Paul approximately five years before this letter was written. So, so this church that he's writing to is about the same uh, stage, life stage that our, our little church is, that Fathom is. It's still pretty new, uh, filled with lots of young Christians, many of whom had been saved out of this Gentile, Greek, non-Jewish culture. Um, and, and, and so word has been getting to Paul, it's been reported to him that there are divisions in this church that five years and not everything's going smooth like they had hoped. Uh, they were letting, what we talked about last week, uh, they were letting this movement called sophistry uh, begin to influence the church. And if you remember, sophistry was this philosophical movement that cared uh, more about being entertained than with knowing the truth. So they mixed this idea of like truth and depth and thinking and philosophy, this Greco-Roman world of, of you know, Plato and, and Socrates and these ideas, they thought they were being really deep, but in reality, they were more interested in entertainment and eloquence than they were in the meat and the substance of the message. And so this church then started to care about those things as well. They got more hyped on style than substance. They were more about eloquence than content. They were more about entertainment than the truth of the gospel. And so what does Paul do? Well, in his letter, he reminds them that the wisdom of this world, this Sophia, the sophists, they, when put up against the wisdom of God, fall short. The wisdom of God shown in the death of Jesus on the cross, uh, the wisdom of this world when put up against that actually proves to be foolish, to be folly. And Paul essentially is in the beginning of this book calling them back to the gospel. He's like calling them back by saying, hey, your great desire to be entertained and this lack of desire for truth, it's foolish. Like be careful 
with that. Return to the word of the cross. Come, come back to substance over style. Remember the cross. That was the, the message that he has given thus far. And so that was the beginning of his argument. And it's this three-part argument. Today is part two of this. He starts with the foolishness of the cross. And now he's going to start talking about the church. The church. And essentially the foolishness therein of the body of Christ, this little ragtag bunch. So that's what we're going to look at today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 26. We're going to start there. He begins with this. For consider your calling, brothers. Now, now stop even right there in those first few words. Paul is picking up on a theme that has been running through the entire first chapter of this letter, and that is that there are men and women in the church, and they are called people. He uses that word called. In fact, this is the fifth time that he has used that very word in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, that God calls people. He said that he, he himself was called an apostle. He says that you were called saints, and then he has gone through over and over again telling us about the calling that God has for us. And, and I just want to remind us, God's calling was an act purely on the basis of grace. He called the believers in, in this church in Corinth purely on grace. You're not called because you're good people, okay? Like you're not called because you're successful or because you're moral or because you have some sort of X factor that might just like make you a good Christian, okay? There's nothing that makes you worthy of calling. God just chooses people and he calls them. That's a theology of calling. There was no human standard by which someone was called. You were just called. It almost seems arbitrary at times. God just calls men and women. Consider your calling, he says, verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers, and that could be brothers and sisters, okay? You see the footnote in your Bible. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Is that supposed to be encouraging? Is that a good way to start something, right? Like, I mean, he literally says, hey, consider your calling, for which you're totally unqualified for, but consider it, consider it. You're not that smart, right? You haven't accomplished much and you don't really come from the right pedigree. Consider it though. Like, think about that. Dwell on that for a second. Like, I'm not sure if he's trying to encourage us or not. And, and it's not like our culture at all. He's not going to sugarcoat this at all. In our culture where everyone's a snowflake, right? Everyone's a Skittle. You just, you just get to do and be whatever it is you set your mind to. Did your mama tell you that? My mama told me that. She lied, <laughs> right? There's plenty of stuff that I could not do, okay? Much of it, my life has been shown that true, okay? That was like speaking, apparently. <laughs> But Paul isn't sugarcoating these guys. He's not like, oh, you guys are good enough. You're strong enough. You're smart enough. Smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like you. That's not Paul. Paul's like, hey, you weren't that smart. You didn't have a whole lot going for you. You didn't do a whole lot for this 
thing. And, and he's not just beating them up just because he likes to do that, because I think that sounds cool too, but, but there's something going on behind the text historically that we have to understand, okay? Paul is speaking into the class structure of the Greco-Roman world, specifically in this city of Corinth. So when we think of class structures, specifically in the United States, we primarily think in terms of socioeconomics, Like classes in our culture are primarily driven by socioeconomics. Now, I don't want to downplay the fact that there's a lot more to it, okay? Race plays into it, location plays into it, ethnicity, gender, like all of that plays into it. But primarily, class is broken up in America by socioeconomics. So I read this week, uh, the U.S. Census Bureau defines five classes of economics within American society. There's the lower class. Okay, lower class are defined as part-time or unemployed persons, okay? Uh, So that's economics, right? Your employment plays into that. Uh, Working class, they are the service and blue-collar workers in our culture. Uh, Then you have lower middle class, which are professional support and sales. Um, Upper middle class is the fourth class, uh, and those are more professionals in whatever field it may be. And then there's this upper class of CEOs, et cetera, who are doing awesome, like just slaying it, okay? And, and, And the United States has prided herself in having a strong middle class. That's essentially uh, what, what, we, what we pride ourselves in. We don't have a lot of lower class, nor do we have a lot of upper class, but we have a strong middle class. That's socioeconomics defining a class structure. The class structure in the first century Greco-Roman world was much, much more complex and nuanced than our class structure in the United States, okay? So your class, if you were being raised in the Greco-Roman world, the Roman Empire, uh, your, your class was based on a lot more. It was based on things like your ancestry, it played into how you were adopted into a class, uh, who, who preceded you in your family, okay? Your census rank. They had a thing called a census rank, which was based on your wealth and your political privilege. So that was an important thing, okay? Uh, your, your family honors, what your family had accomplished was a part of your class. Varying grades and degrees of citizenship. And that was a whole nother, we don't have time for it, but like there's so many different ways that you are classed as a citizen of the Roman Empire. Additionally, there are also slaves all throughout the Roman Empire. And there is a class of former slaves who had been freed called freedmen. So this is, I say all that to say, this is a very dynamic class structure that's complex, far more complex than our class structure. And the reality in the Roman Empire was that unless somebody did something quite exceptional, unless something quite exceptional happened, uh, you were pretty much stuck at whatever level you were in the class structure. Like, persons did not uh, rise up the social ladder very often in this empire, uh, but mainly remained within their own social class that they were born into. In fact, there's this famous uh, Greco-Roman phrase that was coined, whatever one's rank, it must be maintained. So so this is the, the world that Paul is writing into. And Corinth, specifically this Greek city, this Greek colony in the Roman Empire, it was established and populated by Rome with primarily freedmen, primarily former slaves who had been freed. 
were shipped to Corinth to make up its growing population. Now, let's talk about freedmen for a second. This is important stuff. I I promise that there's payoff here. Freedmen were one step above slaves. Slaves were the lowest of the system. Freedmen were right above them. Um, And and they were upwardly mobile as slaves had not been. You're a slave, you're a slave. You get freed, you have a chance for a life. They could become merchants. They could become artisans. They could become entrepreneurs. And they had actually the ability to earn an increase in wealth and success significantly, even though they are not going to move out likely of the freedmen category. But there are very rich and wealthy freedmen in the Roman Empire, especially in a city like Corinth a city that's on the up and up, a city that's up and coming where there's new business, new commerce, and it's this trade center in the empire. So a freedman might become rich and influential, but they were still looked down on societally because they were called new money. And old money gained you respect in the empire. New money just made you fat and wealthy. That's what you got. So to compensate, many freedmen who were trying to earn, they, they, they aspired to increase as much as they could in this social standing with this never-ending pursuit of more, more money, more status, as much as they could get. They wanted to build themselves away from slavery towards the elite classes of the Roman Empire. Not unlike, at some level, the American narrative of this self-made man. Right? So that's kind of the freedmen. And that's predominantly what Corinth is made up of. Not elite elites from the Roman Empire. They wouldn't slum down in Corinth. And not a ton of slaves and poverty, but a lot of middle class freedmen who are pushing and working and hustling and doing their thing. And Paul is reminding them of that. That's what he's saying in verse 26. He's remi- hey, not many of you came from nobility. Not many of you came from wealth. Not many of you came from the right side of the tracks. If they were taking stock of themselves and their fellow church members, they would readily realize that most, if not all of them, don't fall into this cream of the crop category in the Roman Empire. Paul's command in the beginning is for them to consider the fact that they may have forgotten their humble estate. They forgot where they came from. They forgot who they were. So that was verse 26. Let's look at verse 27. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. I love that verse. I love the fact that there's this cadence there. God chose, God chose, God chose. He did it three times in those two verses. This is the antithesis of a class-based society of boasting and honor and wealth and wisdom. He said, God chose you. God chose you. God chose the weak. Not to make them strong, not to replace the strong with the weak, 
not to help them move into the ranks, into the pecking order of the social times of their day, not to begin this new class struggle between the poor and the rich, the, the, the have-nots versus the haves. That's not why he chose you. He chose you to, to subvert and, and convert the social norms of the society that they were in. Now, were the members of this church actually foolish and weak and low? God chose the foolish. He chose the weak. He chose the low. Is that actually, is he saying that to them? You guys are fools. You're weak. You're low. In some ways, yeah, especially to the eyes of the world around them. Absolutely. But again, remember this rhetoric that Paul has been using through the beginning of this book. He says, God chose the foolish because the wise thought that the cross was moronic. God chose the weak because the strong in your world thought they were powerful enough without God. God chose the low and the despised because the high and mighty didn't want to associate themselves with a crucified God. And God illustrates this all through the Bible. All through the Bible, he illustrates seemingly arbitrary choice of men and women. It's all through the Bible. God consistently chooses the most unlikely people to use and to move through. So a friend of mine does this thing where he goes through Bible characters and decides if his church would hire them. Okay, it's really awesome. Uh, We're gonna do it right now. Okay, think about this. You're on the search team, okay? You're on the search committee for some positions here at Fathom Church. And so we sit down with some applicants. Oh, Apostle Paul, nice to have you. Thank you for coming in. So I see here on your resume that you were a Pharisee of Pharisees. Very impressive. That's some good, legit education. In your 20s, it says here you rose to a very high position of influence within the the Sanhedrin. Wow, that's impressive. I mean, that's like CEO status in your 20s. Great, okay? You studied under Gamaliel? Hmm, very nice. What's he like? I'd love to get in touch with him at some point, right? Like, okay, very exciting. Now, I do see a small note here on your resume about you playing a role in the imprisonment and killing of Christians. Surely that's a typo. (laughs) It's not? No? Yeah, I'm not sure we're going to let you work with our kids. (laughs) You may not be the fit for our kids ministry. Oh, next, next interview. Hey, King David, good to have you here. Uh, thanks for coming in for a second time. Second interview, Dave. Uh, appreciate that. Um, that demo tape that you sent us of you playing the harp, legit. All right. Like, well played, sir. The fact that you wrote most of the Psalms, it definitely qualifies you to write music for us. Okay. So like, good job on that. Uh, no one doubts your charisma. No one doubts your passion. Okay. I mean, dancing around in your underwear, it's not going to fly here. All right. But I think if we can rein that in, you might be a good fit. Okay. Only thing is here, only thing, as we called your references, uh, we found out you have some women problems, right? You sleep around a little bit. Okay. Is that still struggle for you? Yeah? Okay, I'm not sure the women at Fathom are going to want you leading them as our worship leader, okay? It's just not going to work out. Thanks for coming by. Um, Peter, Peter, thank you for joining us for this interview. We'd love to have you for our new pastor. I mean, basically, you were Jesus' best friend. So, like, that gives you some pretty good points in our book. There's a few things that we want to talk about, okay, as we bring you in here. First, uh, you confess Jesus as the Christ. Great job. But then, like, three sentences later, You said something that made him call you Satan. That's not so good. 
not so good. On, on, on your last night with him on earth, uh, you said you'd never abandon him, okay? We like that. Uh, but then he was arrested and you denied knowing him three times. Yeah, that's a little bit like, that's hot and cold, my friend. We need a little bit more consistency. Then we just interviewed this other guy for our kids ministry. Paul, you know this guy? Um, well, he said you struggled with racism. Yeah, the culture, the climate today, we just don't think we can take that on as a small church. I'm gonna, we're gonna have to pass on you, Peter. It's silly, right? These are silly things. But, but seriously, we would not hire most of the men, men and women that God chooses to use in the Holy Scriptures. We wouldn't hire them. Heck, I wouldn't let them volunteer for some things. It wouldn't happen. But God chose them. God chose them. And what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth is that's what God is continuing to do. He is choosing the most unlikely of people to build up his church. So God chooses the foolish, the weak, the lowly, not because they are inherently better than the strong in their culture, but because they, they do have a character trait that is needed to be a true follower of Christ. And what is that trait? Well, we're going to find in verse 29 what that is. Verse 29, God chose all these things so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God's ultimate goal in choosing the foolish and the weak and the despised was not simply to shame the wise and the strong. That would happen, but it's not simply to shame the wise and the strong. In choosing the foolish, the weak, and the despised, God's ultimate goal was to prevent all human boasting. The ability to boast in ourselves, in our abilities, in our minds, in our strength, in our prestige. One scholar put it like this, God eliminates all human boasting by conferring his salvation on those who are too foolish, weak, and contemptible, and hence too humble to take any credit for their new exalted position in Christ. The character trait needed to follow Jesus is humility. The character trait to be chosen, to be used by God is humility. True wisdom, godly wisdom is built upon a foundation of humility. Humility. Problem with that is humility is a tricky thing. Humility is difficult, okay? Like uh, if you know that you're humble, are you actually humble? You ever thought about that? Somebody says to you, yeah, man, I feel like God has really been just growing me significantly this year in the area of humility. And I'm just like becoming way more humble. Are you? <laughs> like, did you just brag about being humble? Is that possible? It's very possible. Like, I'm not sure if you're really truly humble. I'm not sure if you know it. I'm not sure if you know that you're humble. And if you do know that you're humble, are you actually humble? Does that hurt? Hurts my head a little bit. Makes me nervous, okay? The opposite, though, of humility is pride, and that's just as tricky, okay? Pride is just as tricky because the, no one who's prideful 
thinks they're prideful. They just think they're awesome. <laughs> Seriously. Anybody you've ever met who's been prideful doesn't think, man, I am just arrogant and prideful, right? No, they just think, hey, I'm not prideful. I'm just better at most things than most people are. <laughs> Bro, that's pride, right? This is tricky stuff. Humility, pride, these are things that we throw into categories, but these are hard. These are tricky things. So, so let me give us, okay, three ways we pursue humility, okay? It, it, these, these aren't exhaustive, okay? But like three character traits for humility, three ways that you pursue humility, three ways that you might even assess whether you are humble or actually an arrogant jerk, okay? But these three things, and I, I straight stole these from Matt Chandler, okay? So just, I think they're helpful. Take them as you will. First, first thing, we acknowledge our weakness. Acknowledge our weaknesses. That is a mark of humility, I mean, that's all that Paul is trying to do in this passage. He's just trying to remind these guys, this church, that they weren't all that. That's incredibly important. So um, many of you know that Marcy, my wife, uh, has suffered from some long-term health issues, um, more than a decade of this. And, uh, and there have been these ups and these downs uh, throughout our years. But for, for most of our marriage, um, just honest, I felt like I was the strong one. Like for most of our marriage, I felt like I was the strong one. When she didn't feel well and I needed, and she needed me to like step up, I did. I did it. I, I, I stepped up. There were some bad seasons where she wouldn't be able to get up from the couch for like a couple of weeks. And, and listen, I, I worked. Like I would work at the church and then I would come home and I would clean the house and I'd care for Harper and then I'd go to the grocery store. I mean, I was just kind of doing all of this. And the Lord did a lot in my own, like revealing my own selfishness in this and like calling me, teaching me to serve and to love and to care for her. And, and so like, I feel like I grew a lot in our first 10 years of marriage doing that stuff. But here's the other thing as I'm reflecting this week, it also did something in my heart that was not good because I think I saw myself as the rock of our marriage. Like I saw myself as the strong one and under the surface, I believed that it was in my strength that we kept our things afloat. Yeah, that's pride. Now, last year came around, 2019, not a good year for me. Like I burnt out. I mean, really, I flamed out, right? Just like went down bad um, and it was, it, it really, I mean, I, I, the only way I can explain it is it felt like my world was crashing in around me. If you've been to the point where you feel like things are just collapsing around you, that's where I felt. And I remember the day that everything kind of blew up. I remember just, I got in my car and I just started driving like aimlessly, freaking out, weeping in my car, not sure where to go, not sure what to do. And I called Marcy on the phone and I was just kind of like, I don't know what to do. Like I'm, I've ruined everything. I don't know where to go. What am I supposed to do now? And she just said, hey, come to me. <laughs> so I went to her. And listen, for the next few months, I had nothing to give. Nothing emotionally, <laughs> nothing spiritually, nothing relationally. I mean, it was three months of me just scraping through life. 
being drug along, and she was my rock. She was strong for me. And God so blessed me by reminding me that I am weak. We acknowledge our weaknesses. This, listen, it should set us free. Acknowledging weakness should set you free. You don't have to do everything. You don't have to be everything. We acknowledge our weakness. It's the first thing of first part of humility. Second, we acknowledge what we don't know. We acknowledge what we don't know. This means we stay hungry to learn and to grow. Learning in and of itself is something of a medicine against pride. Being a student, being a learner is something of a medicine against pride, okay? Because the tendency is as you get older and you learn more, it's not to become more curious about the world, surprisingly. The tendency is as you learn more and you grow older, it's to get crusty and to get set in your ways and to become less curious about things. Goodness, as you get older, you shouldn't become a know-it-all right? Instead, you should become a knows I'm not a know-it-all. The very best elders in my life, people who are older than me, are the ones who know that they don't know it all. Not the ones who have it all together and have figured it all out. Sadly, so many of us, as we get older, we we become less and less humble in what we know or what we don't know. And many Many become less curious to learn and to grow and to be developed. And we often think, hey, we're here. We've arrived. We're the teachers now. Never the learners. This is pride. This is pride. Third aspect of humility. We acknowledge the strengths of others. We celebrate and delight in the strengths and successes of other people. We do not play the perennial critic. Did I say that one again? We do not, in the culture of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat and the thousand other things that I'm sure I'm unaware of because I don't do youth ministry anymore, but in a world where everybody is emboldened by the screen in front of them and the keyboard in front of them to critique and to call out every single flaw in every single person in every single sphere in this world, we need less critical people, fewer perennial critics, and those who acknowledge and become experts in the strengths and successes of others. Marcy and I, uh, we, we, we heard this somewhere. I can't remember where. We've tried to put this into practice, but we want to become, we've said this in our marriage, we want to become experts in each other's strengths, not just keenly aware of each other's weaknesses. And anybody who's been married for any amount of time knows that that's the first thing that shows up in a marriage. You quickly figure out the things that irritate you about that other person. We just said, hey, we don't want to, like, I know, she knows. I'm crazy. I can't handle how she does the dishes, right? Like, so 
But we got some things. We got some work. But how much better would our marriage be if we were keenly aware and experts in each other's strengths and spoke those to each other? Not just, hey, what if you change that, baby? Like you're talking about a way to wreck date night. Do that, right? (laughs) Now, I'm not saying that knowing weakness is problem, right? It's a big deal. I just said that. The first one, acknowledge your own weakness, okay? So like, yeah, weakness is a big deal. I just said you need to acknowledge where you're weak, but in our society, listen, it's just so much easier to be aware of everyone else's weaknesses out there and never focus on their strengths. So this will become apparent this summer for me because the Olympics happen, okay? Summer Olympics happening this summer. Here's how it'll play out. Marcy and I will watch gymnastics, I'll admit it, okay? Uh, Which is not a normal thing, but every four years, come on, tumbling, right? Like, that's just my thing. So we'll watch gymnastics, and it's unbelievable. Like, I'm not gonna get into it. Like, I'm not hanging a poster of an Olympian on my wall, but like, I'm, for those, however long, month or whatever, like, I'm into it. I am into gymnastics, and it's unbelievable to see what those athletes can do, right? Like, after their routines, I'm just like, blown away. No matter how great they were, they're way greater than me, right? So like, I'm just sitting there thinking, dang, this is incredible. And then I'll start listening to the commentators. I'll listen to the commentators and and on TV, they will always have some sort of criticism or reason why they should be shaving points off of these men and women's routines. And as I watch more, like it won't happen the first day watching gymnastics, but like day three or four, I'll start to see some of the flaws. I'll feel like I'm an expert, right? And so I'll start saying, oh, that dismount, it's going to hurt her score, right? Or, hey, his toes weren't pointed far enough in that last flip, so that's going to cost him. And as if I know anything, right? I'm laying on my couch with a bag of Doritos on my chest, chip shards around me. I don't know how they got there. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. That was awful. Like as if I have any place to judge from my, I mean, I get winded going upstairs. These are incredible athletes. Now again, this is a silly example, but, but always pointing out the flaws in others. Never focusing on their strengths. Never celebrating their victories. What arrogance. What pride. It is not humble. So we acknowledge our weaknesses. We acknowledge what we don't know. And we acknowledge the strengths of others. It's a good start on humility, y'all. Now let's finish the passage. Verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of you. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And because of him, because of God, because of him, it's because of him that you are in Christ. It's not you. It's not your awesomeness. I think some of you are awesome. I think some of you are less than awesome. I'm not making eyes with anybody intentionally, right? (laughs) It's not because of you. 
It's not in your awesomeness. That's why it's completely insane to boast in anything but the Lord. This is the folly of the church. This is the foolishness of God in choosing us. The foolishness of the church is this. The fact that in this room right now, this is God's choice. Okay, look around. Just real quick. Look, look around at each other. This is God's best plan. You think maybe he could have come up with a better plan, right? I mean, I th- sometimes I just look around and it's like, okay, this is what we have to work with. This is, this is God's best plan. This is God's best plan for Fathom Church, February 2nd, 2020. You. Me. It seems foolish. The fact that I'm here with a face mic seems foolish. But it's the wisdom of God. It may not be a socioeconomic thing or a class thing, but you know you. Not many of you were much to speak of. I know me. You know you. You know what baggage you bring into this thing. If you were God, would you pick you? I think I might move on. And listen to me, church. As I've told you again and again and again in our first five years together, God didn't make a mistake when he chose you. He didn't make a mistake. Jesus knew what he was getting into. He knew what he was buying when he died on the cross and there's no buyer's remorse from him. I've used this illustration historically here at the church that it's like God ran a Carfax. I don't even know if that exists anymore, but I used it, right? The Carfax, the Carfox, you remember that commercial during Super Bowls? Carfax, okay? Not a good commercial. Really good illustration. It's like God ran a Carfax on you personally and the report got back to him and it didn't look good. Broken, multiple accidents, leaks oil, like do not buy this car. It says it printed on your car facts, okay? He gets the report. It's like God got that report and yet he's not looking to return you to the dealership and go, hey, you sold me a lemon. It looked really great on the lot, but I didn't see it. This one is broken. I got home and I thought, man, this is a great new whip. And then all of a sudden the door fell off. I, got, I drove 300 miles and the wheels came apart. It started smoking. Like, I don't want this anymore. That's how I believe God sees me when I'm at my worst. Like, oh man, wish I hadn't died for that one. You ever feel that way? Jesus knew what he was getting when he bought you. The best news in the world is that he knows you and he loves you. A lot of people love you. It's because they don't know you. I'm serious. The best news in the world is that he knows you completely and he still chose you. 
knows you're going to stumble and bumble. He knows that we're fools. He chose us. The message to, him, to us over and over again is this. I chose you. Yeah, you fell down. Get up. I, I've, I've got you. I knew this was coming. Get up. I've covered that with my blood. You've, you, you've let pride creep in again. Yeah, I saw that, okay? You got confused again. I knew that was happening. I paid for that on the cross. Now, now get up. Let's keep going. I'll get you there. That's the message I needed last year. It's the message I need today. It's the message you need today. You have been called to be about this foolish thing called the church, Fathom. So let's play. Let's do this. This is not a mistake. Look around. This is God's best. We are low and despised and foolish, but God has chosen us. So let's boast in him. Let's boast in his greatness. What a foolish wisdom God has displayed in choosing us, church. Five years of foolishness. What will he do next? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, what good news it is to remember the gospel once again. So good for my heart to hear from others on this stage saying that the church has been the church for them in ups and in downs and seasons of want and in seasons of, of plenty. And God, it, it so makes my heart joyous that, that even today there are folks in this room who are brand new to this and, and maybe experiencing even what Nissa experienced three years ago. Just like, what is this awkward thing that's going on here? This is the church. And Father, we thank you for the church. We bless you for this ragtag bunch, not much to the eyes of the world, but chosen by you, equipped by you for your good or for your glory and for our good. Lord, we pray that as we move into this year, as we move into our sixth year as a church, Lord, that we would bring you glory and honor. God, for those who in this room think right even right now that they aren't a part of this, that they don't get to play because they've done something or what. I mean, take it up with Paul, killing Christians. Take it up with David, adulterer and murderer. Take it up with Peter, just complete on repeat, moron at times. And yet the power of God saved him and used him. What about us? God, thank you for this message of 1 Corinthians. Thanks for getting us through the first chapter and, and for the, the next 15 to come. Lord, use our church for your kingdom's sake. Call the wise foolish through us. Call the strong weak through us as we boast in the cross, as we boast in Jesus, as we boast in Christ alone. Lord, we love you. We bless your name today. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of his spirit. Amen.